Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hempsler, developmental interventionist. How are you today, Miss Laura? I am fabulous. How are you? You had a fun, busy end of the week and weekend, didn't you? <gasps> yes, I did. Columbus, Ohio is one of my favorite places in the world. I had a great time. We had such, I think I say that after every conference, do Pretty much, yep. <laughs> We had a great time, had a great crowd, had therapists from all over. There were therapists from seven different states. And I want to give a big hello to a couple of people who just have said that they were regular listeners. That's Maggie from Maryland and then Ann from Colorado. And it was very exciting to have um, people there from so far away. And I forgot to say this about Atlanta. Tricia is a longtime listener from that came from South Carolina to Atlanta, and I should have mentioned her name. And I feel today when I was deciding that I was going to give those shout-outs, I thought, oh, I forgot about Tricia from Atlanta. So, you think there's yeah. a, there seems to be a direct correlation between the long-time listeners and those who travel the furthest distance. That's interesting, isn't it? I, yeah, I think they, it makes they a lot of sense. They feel like they know you. <laughs> I think they do, and they are. Uh, and oh, and the per- another person in Atlanta was Teresa from. Uh, I think she's from North Carolina, and she, you know, I was out in the parking lot, I was loading the car, and she knew me. And so it's oh. funny. I think too when they hear my voice, they, so, uh huh, you know, recognize it. Since well, that's I'm just, I'm so glad that it's you that they recognize, and not me, because <laughs> I would die if I had to talk to somebody who. Hey. Actually, I do occasionally see people in in uh, here in Louisville or thereabouts that listen to the show, but normally not, and that's okay with me. <laughs> well, Johnny was talking to a crowd about that because our friend Melanie was there, and you know you were friends mm-hmm. with Melanie in real life, and then Melanie moved right. to Ohio, and then so Melanie was sitting there, and then Maggie and several people, and Johnny was telling him, we never tell Kate how many people really listen to the show because that would freak her out. We have to just still let her think it's like a phone call. I still believe in that. I'm sticking to it. Yeah, somehow it's kind of bizarre that people actually listen, but it's nice because I like to think that somebody benefits other than you and me. But, you know. Well, people, our friends on, on that I get to meet during the road show really do assure me that they listen, and I can tell that they do. And this time, a lot of hands went up when, I think Johnny asked, he was really vocal, he was really verbal during this conference, it was pretty funny. He didn't have a seat, so we kept kind of, you know, we were sold out, so we kept kind of coming and going, and so I think that just made him talk more. I don't know, but he asked mm-hmm. how many people watched Therapy Tip of the Week, and quite a few hands went up about that. Speaking so. of, have I just not been the lucky recipient, <laughs> or have you not done Therapy the Tip of the Week? You haven't done it with we the wedding and, and all it. the... No, conferences. we really yeah. haven't. No, it's so... You would think that would be really easy to shoot because it's just a little 10-minute blurb, and it does always kind of look like I just kind of sat down and did it, but there is some forethought and planning and... Uh, pulling together, and then certainly our equipment. We don't just shoot that just with a regular hold up the phone and video it. You know, we have real video equipment and lights and sound. And again, 
Johnny works really hard to make that look pretty natural, but it's not mm-hmm. that natural. It's not that easy mm-hmm. to pull off. So it's just been more difficult to do. And I've had such a rush of uh, my new little friends who came to see me for visits this summer. They're all scheduling follow-ups, which I had a couple of families in over the weekend for that. And so we just haven't really had time because to get all that equipment out. I'll bet after Chicago you'll do a slew of them. I love Therapies of the Week myself because I always think, even if I do really close to what you do, there's always a few little things that I think, I like that. I'm going to try that. Oh, so-and-so will like that. And it's so easy to watch it and just pick up the little, you know, specific things. Well, I I think we may have a new format for that, and I haven't even gotten to tell you all of this, all of these new kind of changes we envision for that. So I'll have to call you back about that. Okay. Well, don't change it too much because I like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's working. (laughs) What's on time for some, what we're planning hopefully for uh, for a little venture. Yeah, but... It is exciting to see that and hear people talk about it. And other people, you know, tell me specifically, oh, those little videos. I ran into a friend of ours, a speech pathologist in uh, Louisville, in Cracker Barrel. You always tease me about how often Johnny and I go to Cracker Barrel. And she was in there on, I guess it was Saturday morning when we were dragging in uh, before we saw clients here at the office, and she said, I like those videos so much. I refer families to those. Families like those too. So it's, it's funny to get mm-hmm. that feedback all at once from several different people. So that's that's been kind of nice. Speaking of conferences, Chicago, oh, my goodness, Kate, I, I've gotten about, oh, 10 desperate phone calls and emails in the past 48 hours. Most of them today. Please, please be in, huh? Oh, and I wish I could. I mean, really, if I could let people just sit on the floor up front, you know that I would. But hotel conference uh, directors aren't really, they're really kind of strict about how many seats we have. And honestly, Columbus was so crowded. I don't even ever want to do that again, where it's that. Well, I'm sure it's about fire codes and stuff. If there's a maximum, that's why. And you just, heaven you forbid that to get out of there. Yeah, uh-huh. and you want people to be comfortable and not feel like they don't have their own personal space. And I told you Johnny didn't even have a chair. Bless his heart, he sat on the kind of the counter where, you know, you, you can start taking and, a fold-up chair. At least I would. I know. Johnny had to remind me we're doing the podcast, and so I'm telling him, Kate says take a fold-up chair, but anyway. We'll get going here with our regular day. But, yeah, Chicago really, oh, gosh, we are definitely going back in the spring. And, again, I hope after we're there we firm up our dates and our location. So I'll be announcing that. And this time the people who waited to sign up, maybe we'll sign up. uh, The person who just talked to Johnny on the phone said, I knew it would sell out. I can't believe I waited. Um, So hopefully they'll. Move right along and get get signed up a little sooner next time and get to come. All right, today we are going to be ta- – oh, and I wanted to mention this before we get started, one more thing. Our little One of our little guys that we saw together yesterday, and I know that I've already came back for a recheck, a follow-up, and I have already told you about that visit, but I did want to mention that his mom posted some really cute pictures on uh, teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page, and she was so sweet about – that she said, I hope next time we get to see Kate and her cookie monster. So I wanted to let you know that that's 
I do do a lot of Cookie Monster. <laughs> you do. You do, and it's such a cute little routine. But anyway, I thought that was precious that she posted that. And so she, I missed you when she was here this weekend and didn't, just saw me and didn't see you too. So I wanted to point that out and well, direct your attention to that page because I know you don't do Facebook every day. And I don't. I didn't get that. to see him, but I was thrilled to hear, and I know you were too, Laura, about the progress that he's made yeah. in those three months. It sounds like he's come a, made a nice bump up in his skills. He's coming along. He, I mm-hmm. know. I was so excited for for him and for her. I love it when you see a mom who gets to see how her hard work has paid off. And we got to hear last week from Bree, our caller, who talked about that as well. So I just love follow-ups. So if you're listening and you're a mom and You've called into the show before, or if Kate and I, Kate and or I have seen your kids and you want to call in and give a follow-up or you send an email or whatever, we love callers and we would just absolutely love to hear from you. And that doesn't have to be planned, although it is a little bit better when it's planned so that we can uh, allot the time for the show. But, again, we just love, love, love to hear about um, success and things that worked for you. because, And I think it's so helpful and it's so motivating for other moms who are in the throes of wondering, will my child make progress? Will this ever get better? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? And so I love for moms to hear that. And I love for therapists to hear it too because it's darn motivating for us as well, don't you think, when you hear how other children are coming along? Absolutely. And sometimes when you, when you're the ongoing therapist, um, you know, it's almost like being the mom, you don't notice how much they're changing and how much they're progressing until you kind of stop and really kind of reassess, wow, we have come a long way. But the way, you know, these out-of-town ones had been three months, and you could say, wow, that was a lot of progress in three months. Exactly. So it's kind of fun to get those snapshots where you, ooh, he's come along. It is, and in, you're exactly right about even if a kid is not saying a lot yet, just to notice the progression in their play, if they're using more gestures and signs. And then for all three of the kids that I've seen in the past two weeks that I that have been follow-ups since the summer, they all were so much noisier. And that is a huge prerequisite for talking. And I think a lot of times parents don't realize that when they've had a kid that's, you know, almost eerily quiet. And I think that sometimes they just expect that they're going to, you know, burst forth with real words that sound, you know, perfectly articulated and they're perfectly intelligible and easy to understand. And most of the time that doesn't happen. There's a period where they get really noisy and where you'll hear some words that I call almost words where you think, did he really try to say that? Like this weekend my one of my little guys was saying, muh. For more, and he had just been doing mm for more. So to hear ma is a huge step because there's a vowel with his consonant, but yet, you know, I think moms get a little bit scared and thinking, was that a word? Are we going to give him credit for that? And so, again, it's nice to be able to see that and reassure parents there is progress and there's a whole lot that has to happen between being totally nonverbal and being using a lot of single words on your own. And, again, sometimes that process takes longer than we would want it to take, but it's just part of it with late talkers. And I I like it when parents can appreciate all the progress that happens in between. And we as therapists need to do a lot of pointing that out and a lot of uh, being good cheerleaders for parents who are on the right track and who are doing the right stuff and for who are still expecting words 
when we need to get them to recognize all the progress their kids are making and, and not be disappointed when it's not happening as quickly as they would want it to. And, you know, Laura, we touched on this last week, but I do think that the quality of a kid's play is probably the most overlooked part yeah. of development as far as mm-hmm. therapy world goes. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like when I'm working with a child that goes from really doesn't have much functional play at all, they might do kind of bizarre stereotypic stuff, or maybe they're just so darn busy that they don't really stop and play more than a second or two. When I get that kid to a point where he has a variety of things he likes and he has a variety of things he'll join me and play with and his play looks pretty typical and pretty functional, I always feel like, hey, we've made big progress and now I've really got something to work with. You know, now exactly. we're where we where I would have wanted them on day one. The fact is, they're just not always there on day one, and we take what we get. But I don't think parents know to appreciate that the way they really should. Not only is it um, nice to see, but it also tells you now they're getting to the point where they might be ready to talk. Exactly, and they're learning so much during that play, too, that if we didn't mm-hmm. really stop and point that out to parents, you know, from a cognitive perspective, they're sequencing mm-hmm. more actions, they start to under, even if they're not using words like big and little, you know, he understands size, you know, because he's trying to really fit things. He's joining two ideas together, like we talked about last week with Bree, our caller. You know, all the uh-huh. cognitive things that have to happen, and then all of the receptive language uh, progress that we really overlook in early intervention and that parents, again, unless we're really pointing that out and saying he understands a lot more than he did because we he's staying with us more, he's following more directions. Right. And we, again, we have to we have to point that out because parents don't really to know appreciate, to appreciate it. it. Right. They yeah. kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. when's he going to talk? When's he going to talk? <laughs> right. It's really because, yeah, when they do get to the point where their play is, has made nice progress and it's much more functional. It's, you know, what we've been working on for a while. Pretty much, when they're there, their receptive skills, maybe they're not at age level, but they've almost, would you say always? I would. Pretty much that's also when you can say, get the ball, put it in the hole, get the hammer, get exactly. the thing. You know, exactly. they get I think the it together. Yes, it does. Yeah, and that's, I think it goes together. It's hand mm-hmm. in hand, and that's that's why when therapists are not using a play-based approach, I think then how are you really knowing where this kid is? And that's uh-huh. when, like, noncompliance gets chalked up to not a receptive language problem or a cognitive deficit. That's when they're saying he's just being a stinker and blaming things right. on behavior that are not he's related stubborn. to the yeah. So that's good. You know, I, that's the book I think I'm going to write this winter. You know how usually how my years have started to take shape where in the fall we do conferences and then in the winter, that's when I usually, you know, my book a year happened in 2010, 2011, 2012, and I think I'm going to do that stage of the play for 2013. Oh, good. Because it's totally overlooked. I've gathered, you know, we did that great podcast series on it, which, again, people will really talk to me about when we're out. Uh-huh. And um, I've gotten some other really great resources that I've pulled together, so I think I'm going to be able to do a really nice therapy manual about that. So that's exciting. I, did I talk about that on last week's show? I don't know if I did or not. I don't think so, because I don't I like think... when you write books, because you're so darn busy with the book. I'm I'm glad <laughs> it's not now. <laughs> you're so funny. 
But I do think that I'm going to You're not necessarily your happiest either. We've got a couple months of I'm rewriting it, I'm rewriting it, I'm rewriting it. I was like, it's good enough. No, I'm rewriting it. So we we talk in addition to our podcast, and, and Laura stays even busier when she's writing books. So I'm not looking forward to the next one, but I know you'll do it. So it sounds like a good topic. I think it's good, and I'm really excited about it. And you can maybe I can persuade you to help me do some of this background reading, and you'll be a little more. Uh, <laughs> you're always so supportive. I don't mean that. It's just very funny. Yeah, as long as you, you write the book, I'm highly supportive. <laughs> You're so funny. All right, but anyway, I'm glad that we talked about all that. But this, let's get on with what today's show is supposed let's to be. Do. And let's we do. are today talking about how a toddler learns to answer and then ask questions. And answering and asking questions is a huge milestone for parents because a lot of times parents don't really feel like their child is talking until they they can participate in conversation and that back and forth flow. And for late talkers, a lot of times that takes even longer than parents expect that it would, and so much of a late talker's language still has to be cued and it's highly dependent on context, and really they almost have to have their little routine or I don't want to say script, but a lot of times with a late talker, they may be saying lots and lots and lots of words yet still can't participate in conversation. And I get a lot of email about this on the website and in real life how this works is that I'll think a child is moving right along in therapy. A child may be highly verbal in therapy with me with play routines and all the things that I say to mom. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about his progress. How how's this coming along at home? Are you are you hearing the same kinds of things? And again, it's so important that we ask parents these questions and we don't just assume that how a kid looks with us is how he looks all the time because as as much as I hate to say it, a lot of times and a lot of parents have told me this directly, their most verbal hour of the week is during speech therapy. And again, you would expect that because we know what we're doing, and we're cueing language, and and again, I love it when we get a kid to that point, but then if we don't really ask good enough questions and realize this is a kid who's having difficulty generalizing, or this is a kid for whom words, again, are highly dependent on situations so that it has to really have somebody there amping him up and cueing and over-cueing and cueing again, for him to be able to produce those words, you know, we might think that a child is further along communicatively than he really, really is. And I get a lot, again, a lot of emails from parents about this and comments on the website at teachmetotalk.com where they will say, when is he ever going to answer my questions? And what, what they mean by that is, when is he really going to talk to me in conversation? Because until a child can really respond to questions, he or she may look like, they're not paying attention, or they're blowing you off when really they still don't have enough language to be able to, one, understand the question that you're asking, and two, formulate their answer expressively. So again, it's a huge, huge, huge issue, and you've seen that too, Kate, right, where you've had kids that you thought were doing pretty well in therapy, and then when you really question mom, they're still not really there in everyday life, right? 
pretty commonly, yeah, and that is what they say a lot of times. He, she says more with you than the rest of the week. And I always yeah. think, oh, it's good, and it's not. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. exactly. Uh-huh. I know. It's kind of that double-edged sword. You're glad that you're able to get that out of her, but at the same time, you want to be sure that that's able to generalize. And sometimes it's not even a generalization problem. It's just that they're not quite there yet. And so when we, today we're going to talk about when answering questions and then asking questions really start to emerge in a child's language. And so we'll be talking about what the milestones are. And, you know, I'm going to say this again. I feel like I say it every week. And I certainly dwell on it a lot in conferences because it is so critical that therapists understand this. When we have a milestone or a skill listed on a test for us, and we'll say the skill is listed at 24 months, that means by 24 months, 90% of all of the children tested achieved that skill. That's usually the cutoff that uh, that's used when they're standardizing assessments or when they're, even for a criterion reference test, you know, they sample so many children, and then they at the the time it's listed on the test, it's when most children, usually it's at the, that 90% mark at a certain age level, are doing the particular skill. And so, again, when we use these age ranges, I want everybody to really remember what that means. And so if we have a kid who's not hitting that, that means there is a true delay. So a kid, in my mind, there aren't as many borderline kids as there used to be when I'm looking at a child because I'll think, my goodness, if he's, if there's a question and if he's doing it, he's still in that bottom 10% of all kids his age. And I will, even though we may not get to see all of those children for services because of our crazy eligibility requirements in our programs, I still would think, gosh, that is not a kid that I'm going to tell mom, don't worry about him, he's going to be fine if 90% of his little peers are doing something that he can't yet do. And right. so when we're talking, yeah, and that's huge. Don't you think it's huge when people really kind of get that and really think about that information? Because I don't know that ever really anybody ever was in your face about that enough with me. Certainly not when I was in grad school and certainly not when I was no. deciding who early on who qualifies for services and who does because you could let a borderline kid and kind of tell mom, don't worry, he's gonna be fine when he might be missing four out of eight skills at his at his age level. And I now I, I don't dismiss that. Even if I can't you know, if I can't qualify him for a state program, he he's gonna get therapy from me somehow. We're gonna work it out. So or from somebody. So, uh-huh. again, I think it's something that... Well, and I really think people to think tend about. to think of that as kind of like the normal age, the typical the average. age, average. And it's really not the average age. And it also, at least in theory, takes in those kids who whose parents really, 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 really work with them and those those kids whose parents really, 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 really don't work with them. You know what it's I mean? Everybody. And Yeah. yeah. So 90%, that's... Um, a lot. That's the vast majority of children. So to fall right. beneath and that is not great. Exactly. And guess what? They also include boys in there. And so when people say, "Oh, he's yeah. a boy. He's gonna he's gonna talk later," uh, no, <laughs> boys yeah, were that's boys in there too. Uh huh. <laughs> it's already lowered because of boys is the truth. I mean, I'm not. You well, know what I mean? Because 
Well, if I mean, you the average is at, forward. Right. If you were going to look right. at more boys than girls, have our boys are three times more likely to have a problem, any kind of developmental problem than a girl. I mean, that's just our statistic there. And so if you look at that, still the boys are already included in those numbers. So you can, it's, these numbers are not just standardized on girls, the skills. They're not just a whole bunch of girls measured. The little boys are in there too. So when somebody uses that rationale, he's a boy. I mean, I know. And boy, I do hear it. that one a lot. Yeah, that's another one of those yeah. really, well, you know, I my Husband didn't talk until he was older, and my mom says my brother didn't talk, and boys are later, and and I always say, yeah, but these number in, numbers do include boys. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. I say that all the time. And so, again, mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure our listeners are aware of that. All right, so when we're talking about questions, and I'm about to shoot out a bunch of these age ranges, the reason that I'm giving that big whole disclaimer is that I don't want anybody blowing it off because they're thinking, oh, that's average. This is not the average age. This is when 90% of all children do it. And it also includes all children, boys and girls. So don't give me any of that malarkey about he's a boy. All right, so (laughs) here we go. What's that is usually the first question that children understand and then that they ask. And that question, what's that, again, um, and we talked we talked about this for several weeks in a row, but I when I use um a milestone on the show, I've put together a lot of different sources and have looked at kind of what's the general consist- consensus there and on some tests this milestone of a child saying or answering what's that might be at a an earlier age or it might be at a later age but the age that I use, and again, all this information is from Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, and you can find out more information about that on my website at Teach Me to Talk, and that's also posted on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page today. But p- compiling all those resources, that question is usually understood and answered by 18 to 24 months. So by the time a child is two, he should be saying and able to answer. If you're now, if you're asking about a familiar object, if you're asking him about something pretty obscure that's not in his daily routine, of course he's not going to know to be able to respond to that. But typically, with familiar objects, between one and a half and two, children should start to really respond to that question. They have to re- usually respond to it before they ask it. With most questions, with the exception of what's that, a lot of times a child will start to pop out what's that well before he or she would be able to really consistently answer that question. And don't you hear a lot of typically developing kids say, what's that, Kay? Or even some of our kids get stuck on that. What's that? Mm -hmm. What's that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to them, it's not even really a phrase. It's a holistic phrase, meaning they learn it as one word, even though what's that, you know, those really are two different words. And if we were looking at that, really, you know, there's a little contraction in there. So there's a verb, but our kids don't really say it or learn it like that. You know, it's what's that? Or it's all kind of one breath a lot of times. You know, what's that? What's that? And yeah. you think, well, yeah, that was that. What's that? But you can say it in just a little bit of breath. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually pretty fast. Uh-huh. But it is a question that we ask children all the time, and we certainly ask late talkers that all the time. And it, 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 it's typically developing kids, too, if they're newly talking, we want to hear them talk. 
but so many times with our late talkers, we're just so anxious to hear respond to anything that a lot of moms get stuck asking, what's that? Knowing, I guess they're hoping their child might respond to that or be able to mm-hmm. say that, but a lot of speech pathologists will do that too. They'll they'll really start with the, what's that, what's that, what's that, when there is very little chance that a child will be able to answer that. If you've never heard a child imitate a word or repeat it after you or use it in another context, it is highly unlikely that the first time you'll hear a new word is in response to that question. And how many people screw that up? Right. Pretty commonly. I think I used to do it years ago, but then I've seen, not necessarily from my doing, because I did figure this one out on my own, a lot of kids, um, late talkers, they might get to the point where they're saying that. You know, what's that, uh-huh. that, what's that, yeah. that, what's that, that, that. that, that we're that, asking yeah. them what's that. <laughs> because kind of get stuck on it, don't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. and they'll, that, you know, that's yeah. what they said. And that's their response. You say, what's that? And that's how they answer you, that. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they, and they kind of learned it as a label rather than as a question. Right. And yeah, so, that's what they're I mean, saying. Can, they're just giving you the response, that. What's that? That. Right. Oh. <laughs> and I've had kids that say, dit for this and da for that, and that is all they say, dit and da, because uh-huh. this is what their parents have done all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the language they've modeled more than anything. So if you're guilty of that, you know, again, we're not being a whole shame on you. We're just saying that could be a reason that you're just hearing those kinds of words and those generalities. So try to think about how you model language instead of constantly asking that. Just label. Say, ball, here's ball. Look, a ball. There's ball. And really resist the urge to over-question. And really, questions shut down conversations with or, or any kind of, especially early on, language that you might have gotten from a toddler who's had a delay or disorder. Uh, questions just do a lot to totally turn that kid off. And so I learned that pretty on too. Don't ask all those questions because you're going to be better off just modeling and labeling and commenting yourself, especially with the kid that you've heard talk very little, it's highly, highly, highly unlikely that he'll use the word in response to a question for the, you know, one of the first few times he's that. So let's just kind of get that out of the way too. And that's something parents don't always know. We have to really talk about that because they think they're doing the right thing. You know, right. we're we're working on language here, so we're going to look at this book, and all I'm going to say the whole time is. What's that? What's that? What's that? Oh, tell me, you know, what's that? And they don't even really ever get around to labeling. Right. What it is. Or it might take four or five questions before they ever start to say, there's fire truck, fire truck, and really labeling and again, you know, doing some, you know, making some descriptive statements or, you know, doing some noises like the fire truck or whatever they else they might say that would be more productive. So um, we have to we have to watch that. And I've had that happen a lot with kids, too, um, where, again, parents don't really even realize that they've consciously done that. So we, we, have to, we have to point that out to parents. That was a good point. All right, so what's that is the first question that children usually understand and say. And, again, children may say what's that 
sooner than they would use any other kind of question form because a lot of times that's really an early utterance that we would hear. On the Rosetti Infant Toddler Language Scale, I think it's at 15 to 18 months. It might even be at the 12 to 15 month level. I wish that I had a copy I could grab, but it's uh, all the way across the office. I'm not going to do that right now, but it's even earlier than that 18 to 24 month um, age that I've quoted on there. And I think on yours, is that is that question specifically listed on the help no. page? Do you remember? No, I don't think it is. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on the Rosetti, it's right. It's either 12 to 15 or 15 to 18. But it's a li- again, my point is, it's sooner than even the criteria that I officially use now after looking at lots of different references on that. The next question that children understand is a where question. And again, I think we have so many opportunities to ask and model this question all day. I think that a lot of times, even with late talkers, I may never hear a late talker say, what's that? Uh, sometimes I think they don't use that because they're so sick and tired of hearing that question that that's just a big turnoff. <laughs> but where is a question that comes up in daily life all of the time for toddlers and the the age that I'm using, again, gathering lots of different references, is that children understand that by two and a half or 30 to 33 months. And they they will respond to it or recognize what it means sooner than they would say it. And so that they will ask or begin to ask questions with where uh, a little later than that, usually 33 to 36 months. And so, again, that's another example of where we see the comprehension first and then the expression follows. With typically developing children, though, you'll hear them ask where questions even as early as, say, 24, 27 months. You know, where daddy? Where mommy? Where go? Uh, you know, they might ask where their brothers and sisters are, where's the dog, you know, where's the patsy, where's their cup, whatever they love, they learn that. And even before that, they may not use the word where, but they're using that rise in prosody or that intonation at the end that they just might say, daddy, meaning, or dada, you know, where's dada, or, um, you know, shoe, like, where's my shoe? And so that, I think, is the, it, usually with where is the earliest question form that children use, even if you're not really hearing that WH word yet. It's just in their voice. Shoe? Yeah. I don't. I don't really know what the sign for where is, but I sure I I do it because years ago I had a kid that did it. I put my hands out like, where the heck did it go? You know, like both hands out to the side. Yeah, and a lot of kids will use that too. Yeah, and that's a naturally occurring gesture. I think if I remember correctly, digging back into the deep recesses of my brain, that the the official sign for where is to shake your hold like a point, hold up your index finger and shake it. But I would never do that oh. because when I use that gesture, I'm meaning like no, no, no. Isn't that how right. you use? Yeah. So yeah, I really I think that mm. that's the official sign. But you know, who cares? We're going to use the. The, ones so that, the be, one that kids naturally do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what would be recognizable and practical. And we're going to talk about in a minute how we teach these things, but I want to just go over at first what the the uh, milestones are. 
The okay. next question that would emerge, and I'll just the the next four, I'll just be really honest. I hardly ever get a kid to this point when I'm still working with them. And so, if you are a speech pathologist who serves a preschool population, you probably teach questions like who, when, how, and why, with much more frequency than we therapists who are truly in just in early intervention, those of us who specialize in birth to three, would ever do. And so who, when, how, and why all emerge right there as children are turning three as well. I just think that they're not as, um, one, easy to teach, and two, they're even, they're so much higher level cognitively um, that a lot of the children that we're still seeing in early intervention really don't get there before we hand them off to another therapist who continues to work with them. Now, I have a couple of you know kids now who were over three, even turning four, and we may be beginning to think about how and why, but in the context of understanding what an object's function is or uh, understanding of physical... Uh, Physical state words like hungry, sleepy, cold, tired, those words. So how and why are coming up, but in the context of those cognitive or comprehension or from a receptive language process rather than them truly asking that question. Now, any parent, anybody who's ever parented a kid who's over three knows that a lot of kids will go through that why, 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 why phase. But we hardly ever get those kids in therapy because they're not there language-wise or not there developmentally. I mean, occasionally I'll have a kid that, that will say that, but it's only when they have an older brother or sister. Have you noticed that? Right. Yes. And they've heard it, but typically kids don't say that at that age. Yeah. Exactly. So what we're going to focus on when we are talking about how we teach these are those first two, teaching kids to answer and ask what's that, and answer and ask where, because, again, those are the ones that commonly come up. And then beyond that, we're going to talk about setting the stage for how and why, but, again, children have to understand those concepts and have a, have a basis from a comprehension perspective long before in, they would use those kinds of words to ask questions. And so, again, if you're a parent and you're saying, my child does not respond to questions or, or even on a more basic level, my kid doesn't participate in conversation with me, I can ask him what happened at school today or why did you hit your sister or when is, um, you know, when are you going to be ready to go, things like that. Those are The reason your child is not answering those questions yet is because it is likely well beyond where he's able to really function. And so, again, looking at a kid who's not participating in conversation, if you're really starting with how do I work with this kid, you need to start with lower-level questions, which we're going to talk about, which would be where questions and what questions versus something like that. And even though I'm saying what question, a question like what happened, again, is so much more complex because your answer to that will never just be, a single word usually or a short phrase. It's yeah. usually <laughs> if you unless it's like broke or something, you know, it mm -hmm. broke, you you know, or hurt or fall or whatever. 
but more likely than not, those kinds of questions are too hard. And even with typically developing children, those things, they understand them and are able to respond to those later after you've heard these other kinds of questions first. And again, I think that sometimes we as therapists do not explain that as clearly as we should to parents. And if a parent doesn't seem to be getting it, I just pretty much say they're not ready to do that yet. That would be like us saying, tie your shoes. You know, he's not ready to learn how to tie shoes yet, and he's not really ready to learn how to answer that kind of question yet. It's too hard. It's like trying to do math right now. He just can't do it. And they seem to understand that a little bit better in looking at language um, development in that kind of way versus, well, he's talking now. He should be able to answer me. I don't understand why he's not answering this question. So, again, I want to just kind of state that, which may seem obvious, to us as therapists, but it needs to to be stated to uh, parents more clearly than that. All right, so let's talk about teaching a child how to answer what questions. And again, this is usually in response to what's that or what's this, and it's to label what you've asked them to label. And so you're basically just asking for them to name the object. And again, this will be the very first kind of question that a child usually learns how to do. Some children will answer yes-no questions and like choice questions more readily uh, even before they do this kind of answering labels. When you look at developmental tests, when do those things come in, they all kind of come in at the same time. So I think for some children, it just kind of depends. I've had some kids do really well with yes-no questions and start to answer those things in relation to, you know, do you want this, yes or no, before they can start to answer what questions with a lot of different words. Those are usually our practical kids. Right, I was going to say, those are the practic ones. Do you want this? No, and it always kind of freaks me out when I know they really are responding to my questions and, you know, they're shaking their little head or making a little grimace with a no or smiling with a yes. Sometimes they can't even shake their head, but they still get a response, some kind of nonverbal response that is consistent, you know, and so I know they're really saying yes because their eyes are twinkling and they're smiling. Right. And and it right. always I always seem to think, oh, you're right there with me, aren't you? I mean, cognitively, you they, yeah. <laughs> they yeah, know what you're saying. <laughs> they totally get it. They just can't answer or respond yet. So those children may get yes, no before they're able to do this. And, again, typically, typically developing children are not going to have difficulty with any of this because mm-hmm. they'll get yes, no pretty quickly and will start to pop out um, – words in response to these kinds of questions if if they know the answer if they've said the word before you'll hear it when you ask what's that but our light talkers really sometimes need lots and lots of practice before they're able to respond to this kind of question i've written myself a note we'll talk about yes no next week we don't really today i want to stick to what and where but we'll talk about answering those questions next week and some things that can make it easier and, again, talk about some of the inherent problems with answering yes-no questions. But, again, it, I think it's child-dependent on uh, when you're working with late talkers as, as to which kind of question, yes-no questions, versus a what or a where question to teach first. And has that been your experience, Kate? It really doesn't. It really is kind of kid-dependent 
one yeah. doesn't necessarily come before the other. Yeah, because they're supposed to kind of emerge at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right, so what do we do to teach a child to answer a what question? Well, you do what we've been talking about for the last five weeks on this show, <laughs> which is build receptive and then expressive vocabulary. They cannot answer what's that unless they have the word already in their vocabulary and in their repertoire. And again, unless you've heard a child say the word in imitation, he's probably not going to be able to pop it out as a response to a question um, the very first time they hear it. And again, if you're a therapist and you're listening to that, you're thinking, hmm, I don't know if that's true or not. I really want you to wrap your head around that and think about that because I've found that to be very, very true. There are some times that you'll hear a kid kind of pop out a word and it's a surprise and you think, I've never heard him say that before. But uh, in response to a question, but more often than not, you're going to hear that word in imitation after you've modeled it just um, in a regular play routine rather than when you've cued it and asked it in question form. And does that hold true with your experience as well, Kate? Pretty much. Every once in a while I'll get a, a, you know, a different kid who will pop something out like that, and I think I never would have believed that you would do that. But typically... They're going to they're going to imitate it in play because I'm modeling, modeling, modeling it, and then you can turn around and say, "What's that?" And they say, "Ball," but mm-hmm. they don't say "ball" for the first time when you're saying, "What's that?" Or sometimes for the thirty first time when mm-hmm. they're saying that. I mean, for a lot of kids, they may have to imitate it, imitate it, imitate it for a while, and I mean weeks, right? Or sometimes even months before they would be able to answer that. What's that? And, again, think about it. It's the confrontational naming situation where you're putting pressure on them. And for our little guys who have motor planning issues, that real, that pressure early on without the model, without them hearing the word, really almost ensures that they won't do it. I always think about a little guy that we saw, okay, you saw him, you were his regular DI, and I was just a consultative speech pathologist and came in and saw him and uh I, I hope you remember him talking about cute little blonde boy. And when you would ask him what's that or to say something, uh, when you, he didn't have the verbal model, he would just shake his head because shake his head no. Because he knew he couldn't talk. He knew it. He was smart enough. And I show that uh-huh. in conferences. And I'm, I'm thinking about him because I've just shown, you know, his video for, uh-huh. you know, in Atlanta and then Columbus. And, the you know, I got to film his first therapy session, and that hardly ever happens except for now when kids are coming to see me in my office. But when I was just doing home visits, it was really rare that you would get a kid's first day because, you know, you don't really want to freak up the family out and bring in your camera crew on the first day <laughs> when you meet them. But because you already knew them and you had already, I think you had already let that family uh, borrow the DVD and so they had already seen that and they knew what I did and she'd already been to the website. She was really open to me videoing even the first day. And so it was when I was playing with him, you know, I didn't know him yet at all other than what you had told me about him. And so I was doing, asking a lot of what's that and a lot of modeling. And every time I would ask a question or even model and really insist that he imitate, oh, boy, he would just put his little head down and shake his head, no, just so. <laughs> uh, 
But it's because he knew I can't do it. I can't talk yeah. that well yet. And a lot of therapists and parents will say that's behavioral and try to kind of, you know, say is oppositional defiance disorder or whatever when nothing could be further from the truth. It's that he knows he can't talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, he was a kid that, that that's a good example of that. You have to hear the word, hear the word, hear the word in imitation well before you would ever expect them to be able to do it on command like that when you're asking questions. So how do you work on answering what questions? You build vocabulary. You model, 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 model. So even before you get to that level expressively, excuse me, you have to set up situations where you know that a child receptively understands. So again, if you were taking a common activity like a book that a parent would use, you wouldn't really sit down with that child and say, what's that, what's that, what's that? When you're pointing to the pictures to get them to label it, you would say, you would do it receptively, where are the shoes? Go me the car. Find the dog. And do all of those things long before you would expect a child to be able to answer your question. And again, even before you would do that whole receptive stuff, you would have spent some time labeling and just talking to them about the book even bef- and teaching rather than testing. So, again, there's so many things that are going to come before a child being able to answer a question like, what's that? So if we, if we look at that whole hierarchy, first you've got to teach it, then you've got to see if they get a receptive language response, then you see if you can get an expressive response and imitation, and then they're finally ready to answer a question like, what's that? Does that make sense to explain it that way? It does to me. And I like on that receptive level, once you've taught it and you're really kind of saying, okay, I think he's got this, let's kind of take a look, that you're giving, you're modeling the word that you want them to ideally say last as right. opposed to, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that? Right. And where's the ball? Right. Where's the duck? Show me the cow. And a lot of times, not a lot, all the time, but certainly some of the times, that is a case where they're looking, they're looking, they find it, they say duck. You know what I mean? Because exactly. they're pointing to it and labeling because you gave them duck last. And they can right. pop it out because you gave it to them. But what's that? You get nothing. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and that's a gift when that happens because it won't Uh happen with every kid, but it happens with a lot of kids. Quite a few, yeah. Yeah, if that becomes your routine. Now, a lot of parents will, um, and I saw this this weekend with this little boy and this little guy that, again, I loved that he was doing this with this book with his mom because he had not had a lot of joint attention before. And, you know, by joint attention, I mean that he's paying attention to the same thing his mom is paying attention to, and they're all, they're both sharing that experience. So before when he looked at a book, he wasn't interactive at all with his mom. And now when he looks at a book, he puts his hand on the picture. It's still not a great point. But he touches the picture, and then he looks right at his mom like, say the name of the picture, and mm-hmm. that's their game. And so she was telling me a funny story. Her, they were. He has a Sesame Street book that he loves, and they were with uh, the grandmother who lives in a different state, so they don't get to see her all the time. And the grandmother only knew Big Bird and Elmo. She didn't know. She did not remember the rest of the Sesame Street characters. <laughs> and so he was a little ticked off when <laughs> Grandma would say the wrong name or when she would say, the wrong, or, you know, not know and say, I don't know who that is. He was, you know, a little frustrated because she didn't know the game like mom did. And so she didn't expect that. 
And so when a kid's doing that, you know that after you do that for a while, you can go right into receptively asking them, where's Elmo? Show me Big Bird. Find Ernie. So that they, after they've heard it a while, that would be how you expand that kind of activity. And again, you're working toward being able to say, who's that or what's that? He's not ready for that yet. He's still in that teaching, I want to learn it phase. But pretty soon, I think she'll be able to get that response expressively. And again, she's working on moving him to being able to answer that kind of question. But if she sat with him and just did the what's that, what's that, what's that with that book, I think he would be totally turned off. You know, it would be too much pressure and, you know, he's not there yet. So if you're a mom listening to this or if you're a therapist and have a, a kid who's kind of at this phase or who a mom is talking to you about that, that's where you start with this sort of activity with a, a child being able to uh, understand that. As far as asking what's that, I think children hear the phrase what's that a lot. And so to really be able to do anything to facilitate that, you could try some um, guessing bags, you know, where you where you hide some objects inside a bag and you're really modeling, what's that? What's that? You know, when you pull it out. Um, honestly, I just model that in the context of conversation and I never really make that a formal goal unless a kid gets to be pretty darn old and we're not hearing any kind of questions, him ask any kind of questions whatsoever. And I would never really do it in a kid that I'm not already hearing that rise in prosody with, you know, like we talked about before, like, you know, daddy or cookie or, you know, mm-hmm. outside. You know, unless the kid is really already kind of asking other things, I don't think that I would introduce questions with a child learning to ask what's that, even though it's on the test earlier, even though when you look at the developmental milestones, you would think, oh, I should be able to get this. In real life, I don't think it's quite that easy. Do you? No, I don't. Have you ever worked on that? Not really. Mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah, and so if it were easy to work on, we would have figured out how to do it and would do it. (laughs) (laughs) At least you would have. And then you would have told me, oh, okay. (laughs) So, again, I think it comes up. I think even, you know, even when I watch videos of hours of therapy that we have videoed me do, I'll think, Boy, I really am asking him what's that a lot. I didn't even really realize that I was doing that. You know, I'm doing it as kind of a way to introduce the activity or to redirect to child's attention, uh-huh. even when I'm not really expecting a verbal response. Just right. a lot and I do do, do that, that, Laura. I yeah. kind of say, ooh, what's that? It's more of a look. I want you to pay uh-huh. attention than it exactly. does tell me what that is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's my point about that. Even though I'm not meaning to use it, you still do Mm -hmm. because it's just a way that we direct attention. And so a child is still hearing that modeled pretty frequently, even, even again, when we're pretty darn good at this now and are watching what we say for the most part, you would still model that. So my point is a child is still going to hear that even if you've not made it a formal goal. Right. So working And I, I'm with you. I use it the same way. I don't really yeah. want a response 
I want a reaction. I want him to attend. I want him to respond right. or react or something, but not. I'm not really saying, what's that? Tell me, say me the word. What's that? I'm saying, ooh, what's that? You know, and then they know, oh, that's going to be a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, let me look to what she's talking about. Because she Lisa, has got my attention with her voice. It's going to be a cool thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, just wanted to kind of point that out. And that is, I mean, I try so hard to stick to the developmental sequence when I'm teaching things and to really make sure that our goals match our theory and that we're evidence-based, you know, when we're talking about what we teach and how we work. But that's an area that, again, I think I'm going to have to hear that kind of question form arise with other things and if I'm not getting any questions, I'm I'm not going to start with what's that because I do think a child would hear that and naturally kind of go there. Now, I do remember a sweet little friend of mine who had Down syndrome that um, a couple years, it's been a couple years since I've seen her. I sort of thought she might be trying to ask that. And so I muscled that with her several sessions. And boy, did she pick that up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was good for her because then that became a game that she and her mom played. And mm-hmm. she, I felt like she got a lot more language input that way because, you know, this is a busy family. She was the middle child. She had an, an older sibling and then, a you know, a baby, kind of back-to-back babies. And so it, it was good for her because it cued her mom, hey, give me a label. Now, a lot of times she just used it to initiate a conversation. She knew, knew already knew what mm-hmm. something was, but it was still great for her mom. And it still, I think, helped her mom you know, it helped redirect her mom's attention to her. And I do think she got a lot of single words. You know, again, that heightened the modeling by her mom because she mm-hmm. said, would say, what's that? You know, and she did this kind of little raspy. Gosh, she's uh-huh. so cute. And so, you know, I think it was good. And I, and I did facilitate that a little bit, but I don't routinely make that a therapy goal because I think we have bigger fish to fry and I think we're going to hear other questions you know, we're going to hear that rise in velocity and those kinds of things emerge without really working on that one goal. And I would be really surprised if any, any speech pathologist who's worked for a while did target that as, uh, you know, asking what's that. I think they would lump that if they got to the point where a kid was two and a half and not really asking any questions, but just kind of lump that together. You know, excuse me, ask WH questions or whatever. So wanted to throw that out there. All right, another comment, what question is what do you want? And again, that's really what we're measuring when we first start look looking at questions. A child has to have a pretty good command, a pretty good um, established expressive vocabulary before they're going to be able to answer a really open-ended question without a visual I'm not saying that you wouldn't say, what do you want? And you're holding the sippy cup and you know that he or she can say milk. That's totally different than a mom when a kid's crying saying, what do you want? Tell me what you want. What do you want? And so a nonverbal kid is never going to blurt out the answer. Yeah. <laughs> you can and why for a again? <laughs> <laughs> you can hope for some nonverbal idea of, you know, them gesturing to you or somehow showing you what they want. But let me just say, a minimally verbal child is never going to be able to pop out that really 
when you're asking that kind of question. And it's a totally different question. And, again, takes a lot of vocabulary for a child to be able to, and a lot of practice. I mean, those words have to be well-established before he or she would be able to use the word um, without the visual model and without the verbal model, without you saying it. And, again, that's totally different than, say, when you're holding up a cookie, saying, what do you want? You have to tell me. But even then, you go right into cookie, say cookie, tell me cookie, cookie. Um, so, again, I just wanted to point that out there because I think a lot of parents, um, since we're talking about what questions, might mistakenly label or, uh, you know, put all of those together into one one category, and they really are. That's a higher level question. So when you're when you're doing that, when you're asking, what are you hopefully giving a child a visual model or a choice would be a way, better way to get a response to that kind of question. And certainly, a question like, what are you doing or what happened? You know, again, for a child to be able to answer that kind of question, they have to have said that word before. So what are you doing? That usually requires that they have some verbs and that they're responding in phrases. And, again, they would have been been using phrases uh, spontaneously to talk about other things. Again, you're not going to get that response first to your question. So, again, I think it's human nature to ask a child that, you know, to walk up to a minimally verbal kid who's playing and say, what are you doing? What are you playing? But again, I think that's more of an initiation of a conversation and an initiation of interaction won't really get a verbal response in those kinds of situations. No. Yeah, and that's just the truth. We're all (laughs) about that, aren't we? (laughs) All right, we are at the end of the hour. Don't look for a response, yeah. Yeah, and you, yeah, exactly. You can say it. We're going to say it. I'm not saying that we won't ever ask these questions. Just know that it would be highly unlikely for you to really get uh, a kid to respond who's not talking a whole lot. Um, you won't get those kinds of responses to a question first. You're going to hear it in another kind of context first. So even typically developing kids, that will happen you know, I always refer back to that three-year period where I taught that little class of two-year-olds on Wednesday nights. Remember when I did that? And right. even kids who were really verbal would have a hard time always answering that kind of question, especially if you were walking up to really kind of initiate, if they didn't know you that well. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it, it had been a week or two since they had seen you. They usually had to get going verbally before they were were able to answer a question. And, again, I think for therapists we might miss that. You know, we think about our own kids who are so highly familiar with us, and if that's our only point of reference for typically developing kids, sometimes that's even a little skewed because you're their mama, you're not their therapist or their teacher. Um, And so they're going to be more likely to talk to you. But a lot of times typically developing children will really shy away from those kinds of questions too. And haven't you noticed that even like in the grocery store or something, you'll ask a a two-and-a-half-year-old, a question about what they're doing, and they may usually they kind of purposefully withdraw or look shy, mm-hmm. like, I don't know you, lady. Why are you talking mm-hmm. to me? And so, again, <laughs> that's just my point about questions aren't the best way to initiate interaction with a young kid. So there you go. And we'll end on that note today. Next week we'll pick up and talk about where questions and how how we teach those, and what kinds of things usually emerge first. And then we'll go right into tricks for teaching kids how to answer 
Yes, no questions. And we may talk, let's go ahead and talk next week, or it'll probably be the beginning of the next week, about choices, because making choices is a really, really important skill that we want kids to master early on in this early kind of responding to questions phase. Okay. All right. Sounds good. We just labbed on and on and on. It went fast, didn't it? It did go fast. I can't believe it's the end of an hour. We haven't done this topic in a long time. I know. You know what, Laura? I just I, this is only loosely related, but I just have heard this with two mommies this morning, two new moms that I've taken on their little kids for for speech communication. We'll call it um, well intentioned. And this particular uh, pediatrician is a big uh, fan of first steps and sends a lot of kids to first steps. And I've never really heard a mom go on as much about stuff she says to them. And, boy, she was given the the kids 18 months old, nonverbal, does not have one word of any variety. Now, he he makes some noises, but I'm not convinced there's any word in there at all. Is there purposeful? And, mm-hmm. No. And, then, and his receptive skills are not great. Um, and so, I mean, I'm talking, mm, you know, he's got some issues going on. And this pediatrician was telling the mom that she just needs to hold out and not give him what he wants until he'll say it. And I'm thinking, seriously? I mean, and, and, and parents love her. And like I said, she's a big fan of first steps. And she always does the right thing and refers them early. And so, uh, thankfully, this mom... Uh, you know, is educated herself, and she said, "I tried that a little bit, but I decided I was going to wait till somebody who knew something got here because that was not working at all." And well, it's like, well, he doesn't have any words. How could he possibly respond if you're saying, right. she, "You know, I hold the cup, and I'd say you have to tell me drink, you have to tell me drink," and he would just have a total meltdown. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm like, well, I'm glad you didn't do it very long. Thankfully, she followed her instincts and decided that really wasn't working. It, he wasn't saying the word, but we hear I that know. a lot. We do you know, hear just it. Just giving them everything they want, and they'll start talking. Hmm. There's a lot of other I mean reasons about. kids don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. You're going to have to hear it imitated before you would ever get it that kind of thing and even then you're loosely providing that model you're going to have to tell me drink before you get it say drink I'm glad a lot of parents don't really take those kinds of that kind of advice seriously otherwise we would have a lot more emergency admissions in the ER you know (laughs) because from kids doing a backflip out of their high chair because they're so frustrated or the parent would just withhold all food and drink for like two days thinking, you know, that was going to work. And really, I have gotten emails like that. Do you remember when parents have said, I, I didn't give her anything to eat or drink for six hours. And yeah. then I started looking I mean, on the website. Like, uh, yeah, well, I just heard it a couple times, and it's like, oh, like I said, luckily this mom tried it, and she said, I just, it just didn't make a lot of sense. And it's like, you're right, it doesn't. Kids are not yeah. going to tell you drink because you're holding their cup and saying, 
tell me what you want, tell me what you want. Nine times out of ten, they're not going to say if you're saying, tell me, drink, tell me, drink. Not the first time. Exactly. Not the first time. They're going to have to work mm-hmm. up to that. But that is, you know, what I mean by people just assuming that it's a motivation problem, a.k.a. Right. behavior. He's, and he's that being easy. stubborn. If you don't right. give him everything he wants, he'll have a reason to talk. And, you know, mm-hmm. I always say kids. Typically, developing kids have plenty of reason to talk, and you can meet what you think is their every need, and they will uh-huh. let you know that you are falling short and how you're falling short. They exactly. don't want milk. They want juice. They don't want juice. They want water. They don't want water. They want what, you know, They don't Kool-Aid. want the elbow cup. They want the door cup, and they don't want the white straw. They want the clear straw that they had with their milk this morning, and they figure out a way <laughs> to communicate just how wrong you are and yet you gave them a drink that you thought they wanted that's what I mean it's like you couldn't meet a kid's every need if it was your only goal in life because they have their own ideas and they come up with it on the spot and what they think one minute is not necessarily what they think the next minute so even if you tried your very hardest you couldn't really sabotage or prevent a kid from talking if everything was coming along naturally. They would tell you, I don't want Dora, I want Thomas. Or you know, no, Dora, or- Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those things are hugely important to young children, as any exactly. parent has learned the hard way. But, yeah, and I do hear that, and it's just like, oh, please, we need to debunk that. I really hate, especially with a child like that who does have some other things going on. Right, whose right. Whose skills really aren't at age level. Right. You know, he doesn't have a word. And even this well, mom and his doting grandmother could not come up with one word. You know, well, you know, he sometimes says dad, 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 but it doesn't really mean daddy. You know what I mean? They were really Mm -hmm. thinking, and really what they finally said was, no, really, he doesn't have any real words that we can say that's what he means when he says whatever. So, and tell that mom, don't give it to him unless he says it. Well, that doctor obviously hasn't had a lot of experience with kids with developmental delays, and she may be a fine pediatrician and handle every medical need, and, you know, really that's her only training. I mean, it's too bad that we stick pediatricians with the job of measuring where kids are developmentally with so little training. Right. I mean, really. And like I said, she is, her families really like her. So I know that she's a hands-on, very, yes. They really, really, and I was really, frankly, surprised to hear, oh, you know, yeah. oh, well, I'm glad you didn't do it. You know, yeah. that's not going to work. And well, I'm so glad they have you to tell her. Yeah, I'm so glad yeah. they have you to tell her. And what I say to parents with that is, listen, when he can talk, he will talk. You will not be able to shut him up. You know, mm-hmm. it may take a while to get there. But when we get his little brain and his little body ready to talk, he will talk. It is not going to be any of this holding out on you. But that's not what's going on. Mm-hmm. But it's too bad that the doctor didn't say that. I'm glad you. I'm glad she had good enough instincts, and I'm glad you were able to reinforce that. So she felt like I did the right thing. Right, and I and yeah. it didn't sound like she just kind of knew that. Just doesn't sound right. Yes, <laughs> like right. nope. I am not going to withhold. 
all mm-hmm. you know form of PO intake from this baby. Yeah, <laughs> word child too has never said a word. You know, oh okay, oh. yeah I know. I know. Oh well, I know. Well, that was a good story. I think it was highly related, and I'm glad you said it. And it's the same thing with answering questions. You're not real. You're going to have to have heard the word a lot before a child's going to be able to give it to you on the spot like that. It's, and especially with a late talker, especially with a late talker. They would have already figured out how to do it on their own if it were that easy. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's okay. it for today. Thanks for a great I'm show, good. Kate. Thank Talk you. Later. Bye. 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 Bye.